Uh, I've struggled to get ready um, for this passage today just because it's so uh, awesome that I don't even like really know what to say. And it's truly been, been a struggle just to get ready for it. Um, I uh, Even last night, uh, like 9.30, I told Hannah, I was like, I got to just go for a drive and just pray and I did that and was up early this morning um, at the hub, and uh, I, mean, I think it was on Thursday this past week. Um, I was just I was just tired and uh, just mentally, physically, emotionally, just and I and I remember just like having this this thought that I I don't think it was just a thought. I think it was from the Holy Spirit, um, but I, just thinking, man, I cannot wait. To sing with God's people on Sunday morning, and uh, and just as we 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 sang that we sang that song, I was just reminded of that uh, again. And and one of the things we're gonna look at this morning in the passages, you, you know, Paul says, "For your sake," he's quoting from Psalm forty-four, he, Psalm forty-four here that says, "For your sake, we are being killed." All the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And we'll get into this but eventually, but it's, there, there's real suffering in the lives of God's people. Um, it's very real, and it always has been, and, and it always will be until, until he comes back. Uh, but I just, I love that chorus. Or it's not a chorus, it's a bridge, maybe? A bridge? Yeah, there you go. Whatever I walk through, wherever I am, your name can move mountains wherever I stand. And if ever I walk through the valley of death, I'll sing through the shadows my song of ascent. Amen. Isn't God good? No matter what we're going through and what you're going through this morning, no matter what season it is, this is how we get through it. We just sing. Amen. Like, is, it, is that it? It really is. <laughs> That's how we do it. That's how we roll. We just sing. We sing about what we know is true. Okay, let me pray so you guys can sit down. But, Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you for songs and worship. I thank you that you thought of music. You thought of different notes and chords and melodies and harmonies but not just for the sounds lord but you created all that just to make it even more beautiful but but the, the words the truth that we sing that for us as your people there's there's truly nothing that can separate us from your love and that's what we sing about this morning lord and i pray father that you'd please just help today as we look at your word um, because it is so beautiful. It's so beautiful and I feel very inadequate to, I don't know, have words to be able to add anything to it this morning. So just come by the power of your Holy Spirit and speak to us, strengthen our hearts. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat.
Yeah, grab your Bibles, Romans chapter 8. We're finishing up Romans chapter 8 this week. what is considered by many people to be the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. And it comes to a precipice with this grand crescendo of, of Paul just, man, just laying it down. I, I just, I don't know, I don't know if you ever read Paul sometimes. Sometimes he's just teaching, explaining, and you know, even Peter says about Paul, there's things that are, some things that are hard to understand that he says at times. But man, every now and then Paul just goes on a run and he is just, preaching here. I'm telling you. He's just preaching. Uh, and it is, <coughs> it is amazing. Let me read it, and we'll get into it. Romans 8, verse 31, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am certain, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Father, please help us. Open the eyes of our heart to see wonderful things from your word. Amen and amen. Uh, The Apostle Paul was uh, not a man who was unfamiliar with the courtroom. Throughout the course of his life, we know that he was beaten, he was flogged, he was shipwrecked, he was imprisoned, but he also stood before many, many people who had the power either to condemn him or to free him or to release him. In fact, um, most of the last several chapters of the book of Acts are just the account and the story of Paul being moved from one trial uh, to the next. Um, One of them uh, in Acts chapter 25 and then into chapter 26 is Paul has been in prison now for for quite some time at the hand of the Jews, but then the Romans have got him and he's escaped an assassination plot. And it's actually... Quite a, lot, quite a lot of drama, and um, he's already stood before uh, several tribunals and, and be, before Felix and now before another guy named Festus, and there's this other king that, com- that comes to visit, um, Festus, who's kind of like the, the judge of this, of this region, and, and so kind of picture like a, like a local state judge, and then like uh, this king Agrippa and his wife Bernice or be kind of like the governor, and they come to visit their boy Festus, and, and they, they come together and they want to hear this, they want to hear about this Paul uh, who, um, who everybody is very angry at and very upset with. And, and in, in Acts uh, chapter 25 and verse 23, just kind of get this, this scene. It says that so on the next day, Agrippa, who was the king of the region, and Bernice came with, and the Bible says they came with great pomp, great pomp. 
In other words, quite a lot of fanfare and, and ceremony and festivity. And they came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. So anybody who's anybody is there and, and you've got little Paul. And I say little because I don't, this isn't in the Bible, but throughout church history, and there's several church historians that say it's kind of passed down through church history, that Paul was, was actually quite a short little man and he was bald. Okay, and again, we don't know if that's true or not, but it is interesting just in your mind's eyes. You picture this right now. You have all the big names, all the celebrities, all the people with power, and they enter this great hall and they set Paul, the short little bald man, in the middle, and, and they're going to hear him. And, so, and then he, you know, he stands up and he, he gives his defense as, as, he, as he has before, and he shares about how God saved him, how he changed him from a murderer and a persecutor of the church, and he actually made him an apostle of this gospel, of this good news uh, that he has to share. And he always, always, always testifies again and again to how God changed his life and to the facts of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. No matter who he's standing before, no matter how much power they have, no matter how easy it would be to be intimidated by the people that he is before, he stands before them and he testifies to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you can kind of put yourself in Paul's place, and, and you know, I think on one level, like we might like, we, we kind of like we all might think that, yeah, you know, I would, I would do what Paul did, but yeah, you know, if we're maybe honest, you know, it would be difficult. He stands there alone and would be tempted and would be tempted to shrink back. And I just say all that because I think that, that in many ways the, those types of settings actually shaped what some of what we see Paul write about here in Romans chapter 8. Because here in Romans chapter 8, um, you know, we don't see Paul standing up to testify before Felix or Festus or Agrippa and his wife Bernice. But we see Paul standing up um, to confront an opponent that is far greater and far more insidious and evil than, than they may have been. The opponent that Paul stands up to confront in this passage that I just read in Romans chapter 8 is the opponent of doubt and unbelief that are instigated by the devil but that still lurks in the hearts of God's children and whispers to us the lie that we are not safe and secure in Christ. And Paul stands up in this passage, as it were, with flawless logic and masterful rhetoric and theological precision, and he goes on the offensive. And he calls doubt and unbelief to, uh, onto the carpet or, or to the stand so to speak, using that courtroom language. And he dares doubt and unbelief or any power of the devil in the universe, human or angelic, no matter what it is. And he calls them to try to give it their best shot to bring an accusation or an argument that could possibly hold weight in the court of heaven with regards to declaring guilty those who belong to Jesus Christ. And, uh, and so Paul here, with great confidence and with great authority and with the utmost importance, he's going to walk us through three accusations of the enemy 
that he stirs up in our hearts that are unbelieving at times, and then he answers these accusations with the actions of our God. By actions, I mean that which has already been done. Like we, we, we do not serve a God that we make in our own image because we are told in the word of God who our God is. And our God is a God who acts. He does things for his people. And every accusation that could possibly be brought against, against God's people, Paul answers here. And he answers it by pointing us to the actions that our God has taken to set us free. So I just want to walk through these, uh, these accusations. Um, and again, these accusations and these, this enemy, it's not just out there somewhere, although it is. Paul kind of, he, he calls everybody to the stand and he calls everybody out. But behind it all was the devil. And again, there is the devil works on this fleshly part of us that still exists until Jesus fully comes back that gets us to doubt the promises of God. Here is accusation number one that Paul confronts. Accusation number one is, yeah, God is for you now, but he might not be for you in the future. God is for you now, son of God, daughter of God, but he might not be for you in the future. Look at verse 31. Again, the first question here is kind of is a transition. It ties it all back with what we looked at uh, a, a couple weeks ago. He says, what shall we say in response to these things? What things? All the things that have been said. Pretty much in the entire book of Romans, but especially the last couple verses that we looked at a couple weeks ago where he says, you know, it, God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorifies. Like, what shall we say in response to these things? What Paul is about to say is what we say in response to those things. And then the next question, verse 31, is if God is for us, who can possibly be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And again, I said, the accusation here is subtle, but get underneath and look at the language that Paul uses and, and let's get at what he's actually trying to get at, okay? So he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, this does not mean that nobody will be against us. In fact, it means the exact opposite. It means that in reality, everybody is going to be against us. Just like they were against Jesus, just like they were against Paul, Jesus said it very plainly that if the world hates me, it's also gonna hate you, Okay? And so it's not that nobody's ever going to come against us. It's that everybody's going to come against us. But Ken, everybody who ultimately comes against us, will they ultimately win? The answer is no. Why is that? Because God is for us. But it's not just in the here and now. The doubt, the, the, the insidious evil of the devil that he tries to plant in our hearts and where he he gets Christians to stumble and to fall because we believe that we are not safe and so we have to take things into our own hands. Isn't just that we don't believe that God is for us. Like we might believe that he's for us on a day like today when we all stand and we sing, you know, you know, whatever I walk through, wherever I go, whatever those words were that was just saying, you know, the mountain's in my way, I'm still gonna worship you, you know, I'm still gonna praise you. That's a terrible paraphrase of what that says. But um, I'll sing through the shadow of my song of ascent, you know, like, like, we might feel it now, but what about when you sin tomorrow? What about when you do what you should not do tomorrow or Tuesday or Wednesday? What about when you feel despairing in the quietness of your own heart as you lie in your bed at night and you feel very hopeless? 
Is God for you then? Will he be for you then? Not just because something outwardly comes against you, but because in a sense maybe you have come against you with your own sin. Will he be for you then? You're like, well, Eric, is that really what he's saying? Well, look how Paul answers the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? Look how he answers it. Verse 32, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously along with him give us all things? Now notice how Paul answers it. Paul answers it in such a way that he's saying, yeah, look, God sent his son to die for you. And again, the reason I'm saying that it's not just about is he for us now, but will he be for us in the future is the, the logic with which he answers it. Is that not only did he send his son, but if he sent his son, which is the greatest thing he can possibly give, how will he not also give you everything yet future that you might need to persevere to the end? You see, because in the quietness of our own hearts, when we have truly messed up, and when I say messed up, I'm not like, I mean sinned, we begin to doubt if maybe God is second-guessing his decision to send his son to die for us. Does Does he truly love us? But the the logic and the answer to the question that is the example, the action of God that that reveals his love to us, that Paul gives us is, it's like, well, he sent his son, which is the most precious thing he could possibly give. And if he did that, if he did what was most costly already, then certainly... He's going to do anything else that needs to be done in order to see you through to the end. Like the logic here is like we don't don't spend $50,000 on a car to not spend $50 on an oil change. You don't spend maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars on a house to not spend a couple... I said that right? We've not spent a couple hundred thousand dollars on our house to not spend maybe a couple hundred dollars to fix your roof if if some shingles blow off in a storm. The greater, the more costly thing has already been done. And notice here that God is the one that did this. Christian, when doubts arise about your salvation and whether or not you are truly in Christ, do not look to yourself. Look away from yourself. Look to the Trinity, look to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit. Look at what they have done. Look at what they promise to do. That God sent his Son while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Octavius Winslow, speaking um, of this passage and many others that speak to the same thing about how God is the one that ultimately handed Jesus over to the authorities. He says, who delivered up Jesus to die? It was not Judas for money. It was not Pilate for fear. It was not the Jews out of envy, but it was the Father for love. Out of love, God sent his son to die on the cross and to take upon himself the punishment that we deserve. You remember how this all works back in Romans chapter three where we were several months ago. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption 
that is in Christ Jesus. Listen, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who judges justly. You remember Isaiah 53, and just so you know, we're going to read a lot of Bible today, okay? So hang with me. But in Isaiah 53, it says, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him, esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. In other words, we thought that he was cursed, but in reality he was taking our curse. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we were healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have each turned to his, every one of us, to his own way. And the Lord, Yahweh, God, the Father, God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, although he was perfect, it's saying, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, out of the anguish of Christ's soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. That God did not spare his son, but he gave him up for us all. He's already done that. Brother, sister, he's going to do anything else you could possibly need to make it through to the end. This is the logic of love. And I don't think we understand this. I, I'm going to try to come at this one more time, then I'll move on to the next accusation. But I hear some babies crying. We got a lot of babies in the church right now, and I, I don't know. We got a lot of newborn babies as well, too. Um, and every time I see the moms or dads with the little newborns, um, I always, man, you forget how small they are, right? You know, because even if you've got like a six-month, I mean, a six-month-old is like Goliath compared to these little guys, right, that come out. I mean, they're just, they're just massive. But when they come out, they're just so tiny <laughs> and so helpless and just little squirmy, you know, whatever. <laughs> and they just can't, they can't do anything. Um, you know, and I remember 
distinctly. You know, each one of our boys, when they, you know, when they first came out, in, came out into the world, just, just holding them and, you know, so helpless. And they can't, they can't do anything. And there's something, though, in their helplessness that, like, you just, you just love them. Um, there's something in them that, you know, you, your heart just goes out to them, obviously. Uh, and I say all that because it, I think there's a little bit of a breakdown or a misunderstanding at times in that when we see our kids, you know, they're, and they're so, especially when they're newborn, like they're so cute. There's something in them that pulls our heart, you know, towards them in their helplessness because they're so cute. But, but guys, the, hear me here. God's love for us doesn't start with something cute in us that endears us to him, you understand? His love for us springs out of the reality that he is love. In fact, the Bible speaks of it like this, and you'll only be offended by this if you're understanding it correctly. But in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, Paul says, among whom we all lived, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were by nature children of wrath. What it doesn't say is we were by nature cute and cuddly and God just couldn't help himself and so he sent his son. You understand? We were by nature children of wrath. Verse four, but God. Being, just because he is, being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul just inserts this little interrupter and he just says, by grace you've been saved. Do you understand what I'm saying? But God sending his son, it wasn't because we were cute and cuddly. It's because he is love. But if he did that already on our behalf so that we could be clothed in Christ's righteousness and be with him forever. Brother, sister, there's just nothing else that he's not going to do to see you through to the end. That's accusation number one. Is that God is for us now, but will he be for us forever? Yes, he will. <laughs> yes, he absolutely will. Accusation number two, there may be no charge that condemns you now, but there may be in the future. There may be no charge that condemns you now, but there may be in the future. Look at verse 33. Again, and Paul does this in this question, rhetorical question format, so you've got to get to the bottom of what he's saying. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect. 
It is God who justifies. So there's the action of God. And then he says, he repeats, it's kind of a more nuance of the same question before. Who shall bring any charge? And then the next question, who is to condemn? So is it possible that God could be against us? No, he's already sent his son. He'll graciously give us all things. But there might not be any charge against you now today. But will there be a charge in the future? That's the question. Because maybe you've, you know, you said your prayers this morning and you asked God to forgive you again and you're just, you know, you're trying to stay in that. But maybe, you know, there's going to be something that you forget to ask him forgiveness for, which there will be, because you're far more sinful than what you think. And so am I. Maybe there's going to be a charge in the future that sticks. Maybe Christ's blood has covered you to this point. But you don't know about five years from now, ten years from now. Maybe there will be a charge that's just too much. Well, look at the logic of God's love and how Paul answers this accusation. He says there, as I've already said, it is God who justifies, who is to condemn. And then he again points to Christ and what not only he has done, but what he is presently doing. It says Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, was raised. So not only did Christ die for our sins, we've talked about this before as we've gone through Romans, not only did he die for our sins, was he a propitiation, an atoning, satisfactory sacrifice, is what that means, for our sins. But the proof that God accepted his sacrifice is that God raised him from the dead. But now what is he doing? Is he just sitting up there with, you know, feet kind of propped up, just sitting back, chilling? That's not what the risen Christ is doing. He is now, presently, at the Father's right hand. And the idea of his right hand is, this is where all rule, all authority is. Is with God on his throne, and to sit at his right hand is to have God's ear. And to be co-equal and co-eternal. He is seated at the Father's right hand, and what is he doing? He is interceding for us. Brother and sister, he is interceding for you right now. He lives forever. He will be interceding for you five years from now, ten years from now. Twelve years, seven months, nine days, and fourteen hours from now. He will be interceding for you, the one who died and who was raised. He lives forever to do this. You are as secure in Christ as certainly, as Christ has been raised from the dead, so certainly can you not be moved from your secure position in Christ. Because the one who died to pay for your sins now also lives to see you through to the end, you understand? And again, folks, if you're like, I, you know, Eric, this is all kind of like very theological. Like, yes, theology matters. And it matters at the very core of who we are. Because if you do not understand the work of God and all that he has done through Christ and continues to do through the interceding work of Christ, then we are bound to live lives that, that crumble and that shrink back against the accusations and the doubts that come at us from the devil and from our flesh. The very one who took our punishment is the very one who pleads our case. And he is there 
making intercession for us. Now, this idea of intercession, let me sit on this for a little bit. You might be familiar with it. it um, the idea is especially prominent in the Old Testament and in the Levitical priesthood. <clears throat> and just a very quick summary is like in the Old Testament, um, you, had, you had this priesthood of the Levites that God established to act as mediators between God and man because we are by nature children of wrath. The wrath of God is actively burning against all of sinful humanity, okay, and so you needed some sort of a mediator to be able to come near to God and to draw near to him as we intended. And so God set up this priesthood that would act as intercessors to go on behalf of the people. And you had, this happened in all sorts of varying ways. Because there was a lot of sin, there needed to be a lot of intercession. And so you had certain days like the day of Yom Kippur, you know, the day of atonement which just the high priest just once a year would go in on behalf of the entire nation of Israel and he would sprinkle the blood in the holy of holy place on the Ark of the Covenant and it would, he would intercede. That lamb became the propitiation, bore the wrath of the people and the lamb's blood was spilled, of course, being a pointer uh, to Christ. But the, but the priest was the intercessor. But not only did you have it just once a year on the Day of Atonement, you also had sacrifices constantly being offered like all the time. And you can read about that. You're like, what's going on with Leviticus? You know, Most people start off good in their Bible reading plan the beginning of the year, Genesis, Exodus, and they come to Leviticus, and they're like, ah, I'm going to the New Testament. Um, but like, the book of Leviticus is all about this, about all these sacrifices that, need to be, to, that need, needed to be offered. Why did so many need to be offered? Again, because there was so much sin. But, but here's the point, is that the, this picture of Old Testament intercession, Christ, like everything else, Christ, these people are just shadows of the reality that Christ came to fulfill as our better high priest, okay? And then here's what was faulty with the Old Testament system. It was faulty because it was, uh, if I could just use these two words, it, it, was, it was responsive and it was obligatory. In other words, by responsive, what I mean is people would sin, and then they had to come and they made, had to make an, an offering or a sacrifice of various sorts that the priest would take and offer on their behalf in order for them to be made right to God. So they would, they would do something bad, okay, they would sin, and then they would go and in response to that they would do it. So it was, they were just, so in other words, the intercessor, the priest, was just responding to all that the person would bring and, and acknowledge their sin. Not only was it, was it responsive, but it was obligatory. In other words, the priest was under obligation to do it, right? So it's, it's kind of like if I get a speeding ticket and I have to go to the court and pay my fine or whatever. Not that that's ever happened. It's happened. Um, but if I have to go do that, it doesn't, if I have that ticket and this is what the fine is, this is what the penalty is, and I just got to pay it, it doesn't matter whether or not the, the, little, you know, the, the clerk or the receptionist likes me or not. It really doesn't matter. She is obligated to take my payment and then to say he's, you know, he's made his payment, he's clean, right? So um, it's responsive, that was the Old Testament, and obligatory. Like they were obligated to do it. The, the priest can be like, oh, not you again. Oh, geez. Joe, come on, man. Just did this yesterday. And Joe's like, I know, that's bad. Well, okay, come on. Like he was just obligated to do it. Christ's intercession isn't just responsive and obligatory, it is proactive and compassionate. This is amazing. So again, Old Testament priests would just respond to them bringing the sacrifice, acknowledging their sin. But Christ is a proactive high priest. He knows how you're gonna sin even before you do. And he goes before us even before our sin, and makes intercession for us before we even do it. Are you following me? 
Now this, you're like, Eric, I don't, I, don't, I don't believe you. Well, let me prove it to you from the scriptures. First of all, you have the example of Peter in Luke chapter 22, right before Jesus is going to be arrested and betrayed. He says to him, he says, Simon, Simon, calls him by his old name. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And what does he want to do? He wants to, he wants to separate Peter from his faith by getting him to sin and to deny Christ. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now you understand what's going on? is that Jesus knows that Peter is going to deny him. He's going to deny him three times before the next morning, before the sun even rises, before the rooster crows. But he proactively, not responsively, not reactively, but proactively prays for him that though he's going to go through this, that his faith is not going to fail and that he's going to come out the other side sanctified by it. Jesus actually, you're like, well, man, that would be nice if I'd know for certain that Jesus did that in advance for me. Well, he does. That's what it's saying here in Romans chapter 8. But let me give you another place in John chapter 17 where he prays specifically for us, for those who will believe one day. Again, we're reading a lot of Bible. Hang with me. John chapter 17. Jesus is praying here, and this is usually referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer because he's interceding for his people. He says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He's speaking of Judas Iscariot. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that I may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And again, listen to Jesus' prayer for us here. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. And again, he had been primarily kind of up until that point praying just for the 12, for the disciples that were with him at, at that time, 2,000 years ago. But then the next verse says this. He says, I do not ask for these only. In other words, these that are right there with him. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's all of us who sit in this room today. Is that Jesus, not just before he sinned, but before you were ever born, prayed and was interceding for you and continues to intercede for you today that we will make it through to the end. He's already shed his blood. He's already been raised. And now he lives forever to get you through to the end. There's so much that can be said on this, <coughs> this idea of Christ's current priesthood, his current ministry in heaven of interceding for the saints. The writer of Hebrews talks about it a lot at length as well too. And, but again, not only is Christ's intercession proactive, but it's also compassionate. 
He's not just under obligation, you see. Like, I think sometimes we come and, and we come again with our sin that we think when we confess it to God, as it, we think that we're like giving him new information on what's happened. Can I tell you something? He already knows. Right, when you can say, Father, I'm sorry, I did. And you should, we should confess our sins, like 100%. But you're not, in, you're not giving him new information, right? You know that. Um, but he's, when we come to him, he, first of all, he already knows, but so he doesn't come, oh, not again. <laughs> Listen to Hebrews chapter four. It says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Do you see that Jesus, he's not just under obligation, he's compassionate, he loves you, he cares for you. When you come to him, not just in your weakness, but in your sin, he says to you, I know, I know. This is why I died. This is why I came. This is why I live now, to see you through to the end. Christian, get your eyes off yourself. Get them off yourself. It's funny to me, I, I don't want to say funny, but when I talk with people about whether or not you can lose your salvation, here is generally speaking, okay? I don't want to be unfair, but here's generally speaking how the conversation goes. As I'm saying, you're secure in Christ, man. Jesus, he's going to intercede for you. He's going to get you through the end. And, the, and here's how almost always the conversation goes. It starts off like this. Well, yeah, but I knew a guy. Or I knew a girl. Or I knew this person. And once they used to come to church, and then they, and now they shot off and they're just li living like the devil. Can I just state something that should be pretty obvious? We do not build our theology off the actions of sinful humans. So if you don't go, well, I know somebody, who cares? That's not where we build our doctrine from. That's not where we get truth. Are you kidding me? Like, we don't, we don't build our theology off of what we do. If we would, we'd be a hot mess. There would be no hope. We build our theology off of what the word of God says. And what it says, and again, here's the problem, is that our eyes are on us or on this person or on me or on, you know, whoever and not on Christ. Because my Bible says that Jesus Christ now lives forever to intercede and to save to the uttermost all those who have come to him. Brother, sister, and again, I know, let me just state it for what it is. I know this is a very controversial topic, especially around here. And if you can't tell, I'm coming out guns blazing today, okay? Because I don't care. The Bible says clearly that you have hope of security and you are safe in Christ because Jesus lives forever to get you through to the end. He's the one that caused you to have faith in the first place when you first believed in him. Even that is a gift from God. He is going to see you through to the end. This is marvelous truth. It is glorious. And I wish that rather than just debating it, or that we could actually rejoice in it. Because that's why it's here. 
to magnify the riches of his grace forever. Our salvation didn't start with us, it started with him. Okay, let's, let's move on. You with me there? You see that, you see that argument? Who's to condemn? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody, not ultimately. And there's no charge that sticks now, and there's no charge that sticks in the future because Christ lives forever to intercede for you and to see you through to the end. Now, the last one, and again, these aren't just separate accusations. They kind of are all uh, built together, and they kind of funnel down to this last and greatest one. And I say the greatest one because this is the one, that this, this third question, this third accusation is the one that Paul spends the most time um, uh, uh, re- refuting. And the third one is this, who shall separate us from his love? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So let me just show you kind of the logic of the text, okay? Is that there is an enemy that is against us, ultimately Satan, but um, anybody, it could be anybody in the world too, any of our natural enemies as well, whom Satan is ultimately behind, and the doubts that arise within us, okay? Now, like, in what sense are they against us? Well, they they want to separate us from God, or, they, or they're, they're against us, I should say. The first one, they're, they're, they're against us. Um, in what sense are they against us? They're going to bring charges, and they're going to bring condemnation, accusation. Why do they want to condemn us? Because they want to, in some way, verse 35, separate us from his love. But why do they want to separate us from his love? Here's why. Because when God's people live in the light of the certainty of his love, they are absolutely unstoppable. Throughout history, where the church of Jesus Christ has been certain of his love for them, nothing can stop them. Think about Paul in the book of Philippians. Like, Paul, we're going to arrest you. Paul says, well, okay, it's actually going to turn out for God's glory because I'm just going to witness to the prison guards that are chained to me and that are watching me. And and that's what happened, and people began to get saved. They say, Paul, we're going to kill you. you got to stop this. We're going to kill you. He said, well, okay, well, to live is Christ and to die is gain, so peace, whatever. How How do you stop somebody that is convinced that there is nothing that can separate them from the love of Christ? See, at the heart of the lack of mission in the church today and the lack of zealous evangelism and sharing the good news and going to the nations, at the the heart of all of it, the reason it doesn't happen the way that it should is because I'm convinced in our hearts we're scared. We think that somehow we're going to lose it or somehow we're not going to be good enough or somehow we're not going to do it right or somehow we're not going to use the right words. Let me just tell you up front, you won't. You're imperfect, but Christ is perfect. And he's interceding for us and he's going to see us through to the end. And there's nothing that can separate us from his love. So let me get into this one here. Is it really 11.10 already? Man, did we get started late? I'm not going to take the blame for that this morning. We're going. We're, we're going. Okay, here we go. Verse 35, who shall separate us from his love shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Now, what are these things? He says, who, who shall separate us from his love? But then it's interesting that he kind of answers it not with who's, but with what's. The who's are coming a little bit later. He's gonna talk about angels or demons or, or powers or different things. That's the who, but here he answers the who with a what. Like shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Now what are those things? But it's had to sum them up all real quickly. They are all things that will probably get you to lack or to wane 
in your love for God, right? I mean, I mean, can, can I just be honest? Like tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, not having clothes to wear, not having food to eat, danger or sword, like being executed. There's a very good chance that when those things hit my life, that I'm not going to love God perfectly. You're like, oh, come on, Eric, give yourself some credit. Let me just tell you about Eric. I get grumpy when my office is too hot. When the air conditioning doesn't make it all the way back through the vent, like I complain to Jeanette about this on a regular basis. I'm like, man, I just with the air conditioners at that. Like, like I complain about that. That makes my love imperfect. When these things come, good chance Eric Miller's not going to really be able to stand the test. But here's the deal. Eric Miller's salvation is not built upon Eric Miller's love for Christ. It is built upon Christ's love for Eric Miller. Do you understand? And your salvation is not built upon your love for him. It is built upon his love for you. Christian, get the gospel right. Do you see how we read ourselves into things that we have no business being in? We we so have gobbled up in our culture a man-centered, man-exalting, self-willed gospel. And it is not a gospel at all. It's not good news. Because we have no good news to offer. But when you get your eyes off of yourself and get them onto Christ, it changes absolutely everything. He says, as it has been written, and he quotes here, as I said earlier, from Psalm 44. He says, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's a quote from Psalm 44. What's interesting, just very quickly in the context of Psalm 44, there were times throughout Israel's history where they were actually disobedient and God would allow their enemies to overtake them um, as an act of punishment for their sin. But in Psalm 44, um, it's not a psalm by David, it's a psalm by um, uh, the sons of Korah, I believe, and they, 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 uh, they're, they're saying, God, we haven't, we, we, we're not being like rebellious. Why have you allowed our enemies to triumph over us? And the answer is, is that even though Christ had not yet come, God was making his people even back then like Christ. And the answer is to why we fall And the reason it looks like we are not victorious now in this life at times is because God is making us like Christ. And please read this next verse correctly. Look at verse 37, a verse that has been on many t-shirts and coffee mugs and Thomas Kincaid paintings and, you know, that you'll see posted on social media. Brother, sister, please do not settle for the American-made, prosperity-driven Kenneth Copeland version of this verse. He says, no, in all these things, in, in all these things, in being killed, being put to death like sheep led to the slaughter, in the tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, in these things, we are more than conquerors. It is not that Christ's love will keep us from these things. It's that Christ's love will help us endure in the midst of these things. That is the gospel. And in all these things, we are conquerors. Um, and again, more than conquerors, it's literally uh, Nike hijacked a Greek word. Nikeo means victory. It's the Greek word for victory. Um, and it's the word Nikeo with a, a prefix on it um, that 
is also the word hyper, which is where we get the word hyper. So it's hyper nikeo, hyper victory. It's, what, it's how you would literally translate more than conquerors here. Um, and I, this is a little bit cheesy, but I'm going to say it anyway just because I want to try to be helpful and I hope you remember it. But you remember Nike's, you know, what's Nike's little slogan or little catchphrase that they say? Just do it, right? Do you know why we are hyper nikeo, why we are hyper conquerors? Not because we just do it, but because Christ has just done it. That's it. It's all because of what Christ has done for us. And we are more than conquerors because even in death, even in death, God is working all things together for good. For those who love him and and have been called according to his purpose. There is nothing that can separate us from his love. And again, that Paul is just, he's just preaching, man. He's just letting it fly. And he says, I am sure. Christian, what are you sure of? The, the, the word, I think in different English translations translate verse 38, I'm sure or certain or I'm convinced. What are you sure? What are you certain of? What are you convinced of? Paul was convinced that nothing could separate him from his love. He says, I am sure that neither death nor life, angels or demons, not any of the heavenly hosts, not the demonic realm, not things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. And it is, it is amazing how <laughs> people love to try to like, like Paul here, like even those last little phrases, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, people will try to pick at this list and try to insert something that Paul didn't say. Like, yeah, yeah but that doesn't mean that you, know, that you couldn't choose. Well, well, yeah, it does. <laughs> like that's the whole point of his language. Is that there's nothing, including you. Because last time I checked, you were a part of creation, and it says nothing else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He loves you, church. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Um, I don't know what to do in light of this passage other than just sing some more. So worship team, you can come up. And we'll close. But I want to ask you this morning, brother, sister, do you know that you're safe? Do you know that you're safe in Christ? And sometimes I think we we lose maybe the meaning or we don't see the disconnect between what we say we believe and the way that we live when we use theological words, not that it's really a theological word like, like security or eternal security, but, but like, can I just try one more time? How can you be saved and not also be safe? If you're saved, it means that you're safe. You're safe. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And 
I think that the great implication of this, and we'll get into this next week, if you jump ahead just to the first couple of verses of Romans chapter 9, where Paul talks about the unceasing anguish that he has in his heart for the Jewish people, the very people that gave him the hardest time that were usually trying to have him arrested. This Paul has unbelievable anguish in his heart for them that they might be saved. I think in light of this great love, the main question that I just want to ask as we close is, are you living your life for the mission and purpose of God? Do you understand that what you have to share, the gospel, it truly is good news? You don't have to pretend. You don't have to make it better than what it is because it's not good enough. It is as awesome as it could possibly get. That anyone, no matter how far from God, no matter what they've done, there's a way for them to be made right with Almighty God. And to no longer be his enemy, but to become his child. It's amazingly good news. And as his church, it is our responsibility, our duty, but also our delight to take that message forward. Thanks for your word. Let us not doubt your love anymore. In Christ's name I pray, amen.